0: Let's bow our hearts and we will pray as we begin our study this morning. Father, we thank you for this hope that we have, the hope that is not rooted in us. It is not in us. It is not through us. It is through Christ. It is through Christ in us that we can be sure that what you have started, you will bring to full completion, even though... At times in our lives, as we look deep inside, we realize um, that oftentimes um, we're not sure. We doubt sometimes just knowing ourselves, but help us to look outside of ourselves. Help us to look to Jesus Christ and what he had accomplished for us and let our hope rest there. And I pray that you would do that this morning. For everyone who is struggling to hope in God, there are many reasons, but the primary reason is because we have taken our focus off of you. So realign our focus. Help us, Father, to treasure Jesus Christ and what he had done for us. Bless us. Would you encourage us this morning as we look at this passage? We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Again, happy Mother's Day. I could not be more excited for Albina and Daniel Taran. Uh, it's just uh, incredible. A day before Mother's Day that uh, Albina became a mother. Exciting. I mean, I can just go back to uh, December 4th, 2012, uh, when we became parents for the first time. And so it's just it's uh, an amazing day for them. So if you guys are watching, praise the Lord. We're rejoicing with you, and uh, I hope you are comforted by God's grace in just uh, all these months of waiting. Um, the Lord blessed you, and now you can rejoice with your little boy, Kanji. Great name, Kanji. Um, ask Daniel what it means when he shows up next time uh, here. But uh, praise God. This morning, we are going to pause on our preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to open up to another portion of Scripture in the Old Testament, the Psalms, and we're going to be instructed by the Lord through this passage. Let me ask you this, was there a time in your life when you looked forward to something only to have second thoughts about it afterwards? For instance, maybe you were looking forward to trying some food that someone recommended and said, bro, you gotta try this or uh, this is the best thing in the world. And you were anticipating, you were looking forward to getting into that restaurant and perhaps you've waited all of 2020 to get in. And in 2021, you got in and you tasted that food and you're like, "Ah, all right, not what I expected. Uh, Or maybe some uh, athletes here among us, maybe you were trying really, really hard to make that uh, high school basketball team or or football team, for instance, or I don't know, cheerleading squad. And you were doing all you can because you thought it was going to be just this great gig and you got in and you were surprised by the amount of effort you would have to put in in order to stay on that roster. Or maybe you were trying to get into some kind of medical program because you thought it'd be fun and that the pay would be decent, only to get into that medical program and and regret it because the struggle got real. It got very difficult. Or what about you ladies who who are here this morning and you dreamed of motherhood, of having your own babies, of staying at home and of raising them there, being a blessing to them. And then a couple of months after the birth of your first child, the rose-colored glasses started to lose their hue. And you began to question your calling and your ability to be a mom. And as the Lord blessed you with more kids and they began to grow up, you begin to feel that, that feeling of inadequacy. And it became a real burden. you. The biggest burden and the most painful realization, however, are not those that affect our bodies, like the sleepless nights, you know, the tight muscles, the back aches, the body scars, and all of that stuff. Right? The biggest struggle is that parenting reveals sin. Parenting reveals sin. Marriage reveals sin. It exposes selfishness in the way that very few other earthly relationships ever do. Every day you're reminded of your brokenness and how limited you are as a sinful mom, as a sinful dad, every single day. And when that happens, and and it does, how do you then respond? Where do you go? Who do you run to? Do you pretend to have it all together, that you're a good mom, that you're a decent dad? Or do you confess that, You can't do this on your own and you cry out to the Lord for help. You know, here's the thing. God wants to use parenting and motherhood specifically to reveal more of himself to us. God wants to use these special relationships on earth to reveal our need for him. He uses parenting. These moments of deep failure and despair to teach us and to mold us further into the saints he had called us to be. And so this morning, I want us to look at Psalm 130. And uh, I pray and hope that it would serve as encouragement to all of us, not just mothers here in this room. You know, I love the Psalms because Psalms usually describe our walk with the Lord. Our walk with the Lord. And you could probably, as you've been reading through Psalms, and, and I trust that you have, and if you haven't read through the Psalms, it's so encouraging. Why? Because you come along one Psalm and the author, he describes his walk with God as, as just, man, very difficult. There are times, right, when he experiences life and, and it's just like a downer. It's a heartache. And so he cries out to the Lord, Lord, where are you? Like, I need your help. My enemies are all over the place. I need you to do something with it. And then you flip a page and then you come upon a psalm where it's just like, man, what, is, what happened to this guy, right? He's like on the heights of heights. He's praising the Lord. He's exalting God for his mercies, for his, prayer, for his closeness to him. And so this psalm here, Psalm 30, it kind of has both of these features, uh, the despair and then the triumph, the despair and triumph. And this psalm historically is very special um, found out that Calvin's favorite psalm was Psalm 130. Augustine also really loved this psalm. If you know anything about John Wesley, he was converted through this psalm. So I want us to look at this psalm this morning and see if we can get encouragement out of it. If you look at verse 1, Psalm 130, verse 1, the heading of the psalm, it says a song of ascent. It's part of the... Um, group of psalms, the song of ascents that began in 120 and go all the way to 135. And more than likely what these psalms were here for is that as pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, they would travel to Jerusalem three times a year to Jewish festivals. They would sing these psalms in preparation, in preparing their hearts to worship God, in reminding themselves who they are, in reminding themselves who God is, for them. Now, this psalm in particular reflects on the need for forgiveness, which can only be found in God. God who is merciful, loving, full of redemption. It takes us from the depths of guilt and despair to the heights of joyous hope in the Lord. And as we read this psalm right now, verses 1 through 8, I want you to to just focus and to remember this theme that develops. No matter the depth of your despair, cry out to God who delights in redeeming and sustaining sinners. You may be in despair right now. You may be hurting for whatever reason. No matter the depth of your despair, cry out to God who delights in redeeming and sustaining sinners. Look at your page there, Psalm 130, beginning with verse 1, a psalm of ascent. Out of the depth I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And... In his word do I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. What an encouragement to us here this morning. I want us to break this passage down into two verses. So we'll look at four headings, four headings, four points here for us to take home. Number one, cry out to the Lord for mercy. Cry out to the Lord for mercy. Number two, the author wants us to confess our need for forgiveness. Confess our need for forgiveness. Number three, to count on the Lord's promises. And finally, to convey the Lord's mercy to others. So number one, cry out to the Lord for mercy. You know, as we jump right into verse one, we're not really sure of the specific situation that the psalmist is dealing with here. We only know that the situation is not good. In fact, he's in despair because look with me at verse one, out of the depths. He is in the depths. He's buried The the psalmist cries out to God, and and, and church, we need to think of this as not just some kind of casual call out, hey friend, come over here, I need your help. This is an emergency call. This is a 911 call. Now consider this, when do you dial 911? When do you call 911? When you understand that the situation you're in is beyond your control, correct? When you you can't help You've exhausted all of your resources. You need someone outside to intervene, to assist, and in many cases to save you. It's a a matter of life and death. Okay, so you call 911 because you can't help. The term that he uses here, the depths, right? They're often associated with seas or water. And you might recall, as we read this verse, Jonah crying out to God, from the bottom of the sea being in the belly of the fish. And Jonah 2.2 records where Jonah cries out and he says, I called out out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth, same thing, depth of Sheol, you heard my voice. This is an emergency call. The only time, in fact, that Jonah cried out to God was when he was in the depths. In fact, it was the hand of God that put him there so that Jonah would cry out for mercy. David, in Psalm 69, he cries out and he says, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood overflows me. Now, this is a picture of a man who is drowning. He can't help himself. I don't know if you've ever experienced drowning. I haven't, praise the Lord. But I can't imagine that it can be good. In fact, if you read all the accounts of drowning, um, in most cases, um, it's, it's it's even impossible to cry out. As you begin to sink and the water starts filling in your lungs, you want to cry, but you can't. You begin to sink down. And you begin to experience silent death. All you can do is flap your arms and your legs for just a little bit longer until you find yourself in the depths. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. So this man like Jonah is in the deep waters. Now what is this metaphor used for? Was it some serious trial that, that the author was going through? I think the rest of this psalm helps us. Consider verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? But there's forgiveness. What's on the mind of our author? He's dealing with the question of God's forgiveness. He's wrestling, church, with the reality of personal sin. And if you skip down to the end of this passage in verses 7 and 8, we find another theme that he's contemplating and that theme of redemption, God redeeming Israel. God is dealing with the sins of his people and he is extending them grace. So this is what he's dwelling on. He's dealing with God's forgiveness, God's redemption, God's loving kindness. So automatically you can deduce from that that he's in the depths of wrestling with sin. He's dealing with his own sin, with his own guilt, which had brought him so low. Now, maybe because of some moral failures or or the accumulation of various things, this man's sin becomes so obvious to him, and as a result, he cries out because he needs real help. Now, don't we find ourselves in, in the same predicament often? I mean, whether we raise kids or, or we hold nine to five job, we serve in the church, we invest into various relationships. How often do you become aware of your sin to the point of becoming overwhelmed? Overwhelmed. In your relationships, when you got a scuffle of some kind and you just, you're just almost like, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. This is just too much. There's just too much deal with. You are despairing. You become discouraged. You're even tempted at times to bail on your relationships, on your responsibilities. You often tell in the privacy of your own heart that if I had a do-over, I would never commit to this or that responsibility. I would never commit to this or that relationship. I would never take this job. I would never open up myself to this person. Are you with me? Do you relate? I think this is what the psalmist here is dealing with. Consider his cry. He says, out of the depths, here's here's where I'm at. I'm dealing with my sin. I have cried out to you, O Lord, O Lord, capital letters, Lord. He addresses Yahweh first, Yahweh, the personal name of God, the covenant-keeping God, O Lord. And then he goes on to address him as Adonai, Lord, verse 2, different rendering, different word. Adonai, my master, the one who is sovereign over all things. Now think about this. When you need help, when you need real help, you better call out to someone who can offer you help, who has the power and who has the authority to do something. That is why you dial 911. You don't call your friend, someone like you, you call the authorities. Someone with a medical experience that's greater than yours. Someone with supplies that exceed your own medicine cabinet. And so here he is realizing this and he says, Lord Yahweh and Adonai, my master. The psalmist, he calls out, listen to the creator of heaven and earth who ultimately is revealed in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And remember what Jesus Christ did when he's sleeping in the boat and there's all kinds of turmoil around him and disciples come to him and say, don't you care for us? He gets up and he silences everything and he says, peace, be still. That's the one that you need to call out to. You can't call to another sinner. You need to call out to the Savior. You need to call out to someone who is sovereign and can address your need. And and consider his cry, hear me, answer me, help me. There's no directive, there's no command. There is a simple plea for mercy. There's no self-help here, no way. When we really look inside of ourselves and understand, brothers and sisters, the real issue we're dealing with We must honestly acknowledge that we cannot help ourselves. We simply can't. And guess what? The guy who's sitting next to you or the gal who's sitting next to you can't help you either. We're limited. We're in the same boat, perishing. We need to cry out to the sovereign God. And when sin becomes apparent... And guilt becomes to eat at you, right? There's only one who can actually do something about it. There's only one to whom you need to look. And what is he asking for? He is pleading for mercy. He's sensing and he's being aware of God's judgment because of sin. He understands that he can only do one thing. I plead guilty and I need your help. There's no escaping here. Friend, do you draw near to God? Do you cry out to him? If you do, why? Why? When you see your inadequacies, do you cry out to God for mercy? If you do, praise the Lord, you're right where God wants you to be. You know, sometimes we want to escape the deaths, but that's where God places us so that we would feel our need We would feel our desperation, and we would do what the psalmist here is doing, cry out to God. He's bringing in a trial, putting you in the depths to show you and reveal something about you. You know, maybe you came here this morning looking for hope. Looking for hope. Praise the Lord. You're right where God wants you to be there is hope. There's hope in the Word of God. There's hope in God. Now, what prompts someone to cry out for mercy? What prompts them? Consider these next two things, which brings us to our second point. Confess your need for forgiveness. There are two things that you need to know. There are two things that Psalmist here is aware of. Number one, he acknowledges that he's a sinner. As he's thinking about his wretched state, he is realizing this. I'm in deep trouble. I'm a sinner. And this is his confession. He includes himself with the rest. Now, think about this. Suppose that the Lord had a notebook in his hand. Okay? And by the way, just a reminder that Revelation says that there are books in heaven. Okay? So, the Lord has a notebook in his hand. And suppose that that he watches your life very carefully and that he scrutinizes every single action. And he does because that's what scripture tells that he does. And suppose that every time you sinned, he carefully took notice of it and he recorded it in his little notebook. And then suppose that he brought this notebook to the final judgment and you and him are standing there and he opens this notebook and he begins to read Everything. And suppose that he then demands a payment for every single sin that's been written down in that little notebook. What would happen then? What would happen then? This is what the psalmist is thinking. This is what, what's on his mind, and, and look what he's, look what he's saying. Verse three: "If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, that's exactly what he means. If you should mark, if you should have a whiteboard and start marking iniquities, Tim, boom, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every single minute, boom, 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 marking it down. He says, if you should do that, and God does, everything is recorded. Who could stand, verse 3, who could remain standing under such scrutiny? That's what he is getting at. Nobody a rhetorical question. Nobody can. Why? Because we know that we're sinners. Because we know none are righteous. Psalm 143.2 says, in your sight, no man living is righteous. Isaiah 53.6. All of us like sheep have what? Gone astray. Romans 3.10, quoting another psalm, there none non-righteous, not even one. And so when this psalmist He's considering the depth he's in, the sin and the guilt that amounts. Who could stand his wondering? The obvious answer is nobody. William Plummer says it is utterly vain for unbelievers to delude themselves with the persuasion that they are not sinners against God and under his wrath and curse. In vain do any man persuade himself that he can, by doing, meet the precept or by suffering satisfied the penalty of the law of God. Pointless, vain. And you understand that. You know that. That's why you grasp at every straw for hope. But I did this. But I did that. But I went there. But I... why, Why do sinners try to do that? It's because they know that within themselves they're unable. They need hope outside of themselves. If you should mark iniquity, O oh Lord, who could stand? Knowledge of self, that you are a sinner. But there's good news for all of us here, isn't there? As we humbly acknowledge that we're wretched sinners in the same breath, church, in the same breath, we acknowledge that there is great forgiveness with the Lord. But, verse 4, but. It's one of the great buts in Scripture. Great contrast. But, don't, don't miss the emphasis here. He says, but with you. But with you. In fact, the original here, it has a different word order because the emphasis is, with me, there are a bunch of iniquities. But with you. You see the contrast here? All I can give you is iniquity. All I can give you is sin. All I can give you is despair. But with you, there is forgiveness. With me, there is iniquity. With you, there's forgiveness. And isn't that the greatest wonder of the gospel that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ? I mean, doesn't this reflect the New Testament passage like Ephesians chapter two, where Paul begins to write and he says, you, we were dead and our trespasses and since, but God, being rich in mercy. The good news of Psalm 130 is that there's forgiveness with God. That's the good news for all of us. God is a forgiving God. If you mark me, I will die. I will be doomed, but with you. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Two other times this word forgiveness is used in the Old Testament. I was surprised to find out only three times, one here in one thirty, And Daniel 9.9 says, to the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness. Look, if you're looking for release, if you're looking for ultimate compassion and forgiveness, it only belongs to the Lord. No one else can grant it to you. Nehemiah 9.17 says, but you... Are a God of forgiveness. If I was gonna describe our Lord, Nehemiah says, You're a God of forgiveness. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And when we know and experience this loving kindness, Scripture says, You are blessed. That's what we've been studying: the Sermon on the Mount. You are blessed. You are approved by God. Those who cry out for mercy and receive grace from God. Psalm 32 one says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, covered. And church, we're even more blessed, aren't we? We know the savior. We not only anticipate as these Old Testament saints looked forward to but we being on the right side of the cross we know the real facts of the gospel that the father had sent his son into the world so that the world might be saved through him it's the reality of second corinthians 5 19 where paul writes that god was in christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them is what we're dealing with forgiveness he's covering his letting it go because if you would have kept all of it then he would mark it and you would be doomed but he covers it all he doesn't count them against you because they were counted against our lord they were put on jesus christ but i want you to notice however the reason why god forgives why God shows mercy. Check this out. Verse four, that you may be feared. That you may be feared. God forgives so that we would fear him. I mean, you would expect something else, right? He would, when I read this, I thought I misread it. That you may be praised, that you may be loved, that you may be adored, that you may be exalted, right? Forgiveness equals praise. But he says something else here. The psalmist teaches us that fear is the right response to God's forgiveness. Fear. So if I was going to ask you, how many of you here this morning experienced God's forgiveness? And you would raise your hand and I would follow up. Do you fear the Lord? Because that is what's anticipated here. That. It's a purpose statement. He saved us so that we may fear, so that we would revere him. Proverbs has a lot to say about fear of the Lord. One verse in particular, Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, is to hate evil. And so think about this. In verse three, Lord, Psalmist is thinking and praying, and he's saying, if you would just mark evil, if you would just mark all of my iniquity, who could stand? But you forgave You covered it, right? How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You took all of that away so that what? You would not remain and you would not maintain this kind of lifestyle, but that you would be feared, that you would begin to hate what you once loved and love what you once hated. The fear of the Lord is for the believer. It's for the one whose sin is forgiven. Spurgeon said this, you you stand before God convicted and condemned with a rope around your neck and God pardons your sin. You then weep for joy, hate the evil which you've been forgiven and live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood you've been cleansed. That's good, isn't it? I mean, we often get forgiveness wrong. You know, people often think that if God forgives, it doesn't matter how you live because all of that is just done away with, but absolutely not. When you believe in the gospel, everything changes. Isn't that what Romans 6 teaches? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So what does it mean to fear the Lord? To fear the Lord is to love the Lord. To fear the Lord is to serve the Lord. To fear the Lord is to live for the Lord. You are no longer self-oriented. You are God-oriented. He is your Adonai, verse 2. He is your master. He saved you in order to rescue you from you. He saved you in order to rescue you from the dominion of sin so that you would be revering God. Revering God. Thomas Adams says, No man more truly loves God than he that is most fearful to offend him. So the psalmist tells us that no matter how deep you may be in guilt and in despair over your sin, you can cry out to God for mercy. And as you do, you acknowledge your need for forgiveness without which you are done. You're doomed. Friends, if any of you continue to believe the lie that you will justify yourselves before the Holy God without Christ on your side, I just just plead with you, do not make that mistake. Do not make that mistake. Believe God's word this morning. No one, verse 3 says, will stand. No one will stand. You will be damned. You will be doomed. God's word says it. Your life offends God, not man. God. Your problem is sinful heart, which you can't fix. Not just your behavior that you can modify. There's forgiveness at the cross. Jesus died for you to restore you. The call here is to cry out. So would you cry out this morning for mercy and confess your sin and confess your need for forgiveness? And we know that the Lord stands ready to forgive. The Lord stands ready to offer it to you right now. Now, Christians those of you who do confess, those of you who do relate to God, those of you who fear God, do you rejoice in the Lord's forgiveness? When you're at that bottom, when you've just had, had it with your kids, when you just had it with your boss, when you just had it with your Christian neighbor who is sitting next to you, and you're just in your room, in the privacy of your own thoughts, do you rejoice? Just understanding that you're sinful, do you rejoice in God's forgiveness? You know, even as believers, right, who rejoice in God's forgiveness, sin often strains this relationship with the Lord. We don't 100% of the time fear God. We sin and we sin often. What do we do then? How do we battle that? What do you do... When you've had enough, when sin gets better of you, the psalmist says, you confess. And number three, you count on the Lord's promises. You count on the Lord's promises. Look what he says in verse five and six. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. Now, commentators, they often debate on exactly what the psalmist here is waiting for. But I think it's, it's right here. He says, I wait for the Lord. I wait for the Lord. Now, he's not waiting for forgiveness, as he's cried out and acknowledged that in verse 4. He's not waiting to feel forgiven, since forgiveness is a fact obtained by faith. It is not a feeling. The psalmist here is waiting on God for that sense of his presence. He is waiting and hoping for intimacy with God as he had known before this particular sin. He wants God's assurance, church, that he is still his child, that he's still part of the family, and therefore he's crying out and he's waiting for the Lord. The, the, the words here that are used for verses 5 and 6, I wait and then I hope, they're very similar here. They're like synonyms. To wait with hope is to have confidence. I am confident in my God. It is to be assured that what God has said is true. And he wants to be assured again and again of his relationship with the Lord that he's in fact forgiven. Sometimes, listen, sometimes you're just not sure, correct? Or am I the only one? When you, when you fail, when you sin, you sometimes you begin to wonder and you're kind of like, Lord, I, I, know, I know this is what it says, but I'm just not sure. When you begin to experience trial and doubts begin to settle in, when, you, when you're in your own depths, I mean, it's hard to wait confidently, wait patiently. But look what he says here, I am confident, I am counting on your promises. What is the basis of psalmist's hope here? Look at the verse, look at the verse in verse 5. And in his word do I hope, I hope because I have this church, I hope because I have the word of God written in my language that I can understand. And when I read, I hope in this because I consider this the truth. God said it, man wrote it down, and I believe it. That's why I hope. That's why I have confidence. Matthew Henry says, We must hope for that only which he has promised in his word, and not for the creatures of our own fancy and imagination. And we must hope for it because he has promised it and not from any opinion of our own merit. Church, the way, the reason why we continue to hope today, even as we despair, even as we reflect on God's mercies and our inability to fear God every single day, all the time, is because of his word. When you're struggling to see how God will ever complete this project, this project don't look inside there's no hope inside look to jesus look outside look to his word what he has started the word says he will complete it hebrews 10 we read the passage verse 23 the next verse says let us hold fast the confession of our hope what without wavering why why would we do that? Why would you, who confess Jesus Christ as Lord yet continue to fail, continue to see the depths of your sin, why would you hold fast your hope without wavering? The passage tells us because he who has promised is faithful. Has nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with your spouse, has nothing to do with your pastor. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ and what he had promised. He's going to fulfill. Now, how should we wait and hope? He says, I wait and hope with certainty. Where do we get that? Well, he says, I wait and my soul waits, verse 6, as the watchman waits for the morning. Watchman. Watchman would stand in his post and probably on the city wall and and all night long he would stay up, be alert as everyone slept and he would watch for the enemy. And they didn't have time back then, watches. So they would look out to the horizon to see the break of dawn. And that's when they knew that their shift was over. They would watch all night long, and their job was hard, not because it required great skill, but because the night just dragged on and on and on and on, and the temptation to fall asleep was so great. But they kept watching, and as they watched the horizon, they saw the break of dawn, and they're like, okay, my shift is over. It was certain. As hard as it was here, the fact that morning is coming, It was certain. And so he's saying, I am waiting for the Lord just like that watchman. Any of you ever pulled an all-nighter because you had a project or a paper due next day? I'm sure you have, I'm sure you have. What was certain about that time is that that project, that due date is coming. It wasn't gonna get moved just because you're staying up or just because you didn't finish it on time. You are required, right? It it was certain. Same thing here. I'm sure Tarans were experiencing the same thing this week as the due date approached, right, and passed. They're like, we don't know the hour, but we know it is coming. It's certain. It's going to happen here. Friends, it's the same thing with you and me. Only hope. Our only hope is relying on God's promises because they are sure, just like the next dawn. We're not waiting for the Lord to do something. We believe that he's at work today, right now. And ultimately, what are we waiting for? Church, what are we waiting for ultimately here? We're spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're spreading hope, as we'll get to it in just a second. But we're ultimately waiting to see him just as he is, 1 John chapter 3. We will be fully and finally redeemed, no longer battling fears, no longer dealing with doubts. We will forever experience the nearness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe you've been struggling to believe the promises of God and his forgiveness for years. You know it is possible. It is possible that you've been attending church for many, many years and continue to fail to believe, to entrust, to submit. Maybe you have been in attendance in our church for many years. But deep down in the depths, like in verse one, in the depths where nobody else knows and sees, you're struggling to find real solution for your sin. Or perhaps you've been even involved in ministry here or somewhere else for many years. And you've been propagating the gospel but failing to believe it yourself. There's hope for you in this psalm, friend. The psalm here is written to stir our faith in Christ. I don't know if you know the story of John Wesley, 18th century Methodist evangelist. He began his ministry in 1728, yet by his own admission, he was not personally converted to Christ until 10 years later. 10 years preaching the gospel, 10 years serving the church as an unbeliever, failing to experience God's forgiveness. On May 24th, 1738, Wesley attended St. Paul's Cathedral in London and he heard Psalm 130 sung as an anthem, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Deep conviction came over his heart. How could he find acceptance with God who kept perfect record of his many sins? Later that night, Wesley visited a small group of believers where he heard the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. His regenerated soul was strangely warmed, and finally, 10 years later, John Wesley was converted to Jesus Christ. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? There's hope for you, friend, hope in God. Be assured by his word that our God is loving and forgiving God. But the psalmist doesn't stop his song here. Notice something else. Having been in the depths of his guilt and despair and then experiencing God's forgiveness, he knows that others are where he used to be. They need God's forgiveness. They need to hope in the Lord. So he concludes... Finally, number four, convey the Lord's mercy to others. He concludes, oh, Israel, verse seven, hope in the Lord. He turns now to his readers. He describes his own struggle and his fight for faith. But now he calls others to hope in God. Count on God. Hope in God. There's forgiveness with the Lord. Why does the Lord forgive? Why does he forgive? For with the Lord, there's loving kindness. There's loving kindness. There's a lot of love. He is merciful. Covenant love of God. His steadfast love. He wants you to know that God is not mean. God is not mean. And even as he marks sins, he forgives. He is merciful. How does God forgive? And with him, verse 7 is abundant redemption. It's abundant redemption. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, ultimately. These saints, they anticipated the final removal, the final buyback, if you would, when the Messiah comes. But we know it happened, right? We know it happened. Ephesians 1:7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have it now. And it's in Jesus Christ. With the Lord, there's full redemption. Do you have great sin, friend? Great. Don't be afraid. God has great grace. Abundant, plentiful, plentiful redemption. Now, what does he forgive? What does God forgive? He says, all his iniquities. All his iniquities. How many? All. You know, I'm not sure how many in our room here have struggled or have had the experience of going through cancer. But if any of you did and you actually went through cancer treatment, whether it was surgery or um, chemo or radiation afterwards, one of the most anxious moments for you was that blood test after everything was done after you went through your six, seven, eight sessions, 15 sessions of chemo, it's that blood test. It's the most anxious moment. Why is it so anxious? Because the question on your mind is always, did they get it all? Right? Am I in remission? Did they miss something? Did they fail to cut out everything and so they're still... Something there that will spread, perhaps. Did they get it all? Friend, if you trust in Jesus, God promises that I got it all. I got it all. Like there's no, there's no place, there's no room to fear that something may have escaped. I got it all. All his iniquities. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're struggling with recurring, with besetting sin, Maybe you're wanting to know and experience full forgiveness. Friend, look to Jesus Christ. Believe God's word. Hope in him who had promised and performed for all, for us all. That's required. You believe this? Church, do you believe God's word? Well, then turn around and tell it to a friend. Become a conduit of God's grace. That's what he's saying here. Psalmist says, I believe this. I've experienced this. I've called out to the Lord. He answered. I continue to wait for him. I believe this so you believe it too. Hope in God. Hope in God. Next time you mothers get together for a play date, tell this to one another. God's mercies are plentiful. God's loving kindness endures forever. Don't keep it to yourself. This great news needs to be proclaimed to others. Now, Remember finally no matter the depths of your despair cry out to God for mercy because he delights in redeeming sinners instead of being discouraged about your shortcomings and being defeated by your sins confess them before the Lord and embrace the grace that he has for you cry out confess count on and convey may God give us grace to look to him when sin gets better of us because only through Christ Can we be confident of his never failing love to us? Father, we thank you for this reminder. May we just treasure these words in our hearts. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we just once again be reminded and go out and proclaim this. May we become channels, these conduits that convey your mercies to others, to hope in God, because everything else will ultimately perish. Thank you, Father. We rejoice in your abundant forgiveness. Amen.